Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. My name's Ollie Henderson and thanks first of all for all the messages following last week's episode with Grace Lorden. By the sounds of it, many of you seem to enjoy listening to her successfully cutting through the bullshit you usually get when it comes to New Year's resolutions and goal setting with some practical and useful advice. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, make sure you dig it out of the feed. In the newsletter over the coming weeks, I'm going to be writing about some of the topics we discuss, such as the role of luck in your career and how to receive and act on feedback. Today, I have another fascinating guest. Nick Whitfield is the chairman and chief seer of Panacea, the cybersecurity business he founded in 2014. Nick's a computer scientist and technology entrepreneur. He's now also a passionate advocate for well-being exploring consciousness and learning new ways to help entrepreneurs and leaders stay well. Now after reading about Panacea's work and coming across Nick's LinkedIn profile, I contacted him to ask if he'd be up for an interview as part of the research for my book Work Life Flywheel which will be published next January. I found our conversation so interesting I had to bring him on this podcast too. During the chat you'll hear today we discuss how After years of severe chronic back pain, Nick was told by a consultant that he was going to eventually lose the feeling in his hands and the only solution was inserting a terrifying sounding shunt, a metal tube to drain fluid from his brain and spine. Understandably, he didn't really fancy the sound of that and with a willingness to try anything by that point to avoid such an invasive procedure, he tested what in our highly medicalised society appeared a radical solution, meditation and journaling. Now, Nick and I go on to discuss the new habits he incorporated into his daily life, the impact they had on his ability to lead his growing business, and how he lent on the support of his family and colleagues to ultimately live a pain-free life. I am someone who was first diagnosed with degenerative discs when I was 15, and I've suffered ongoing back pain throughout my adult life, so I'm sure you can imagine I found Nick's story inspiring. I've already implemented some of the tips he's given me, and I'm looking forward to exploring the benefits of the various practices we discussed in my work and personal life. Now, as well as discussing Nick's dramatic recovery, he also shares insights on his approach to leadership, which, as you might expect, includes a focus on well-being for the whole business. And I'll be writing about many of these topics in the book, as well as the newsletter over the coming weeks. So make sure you sign up for updates. You'll find a link in the show notes alongside Nick's profile and a couple of resources he shared with me. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Nick Whitfield. I started by asking him about his journey as a leader and how his personal story has impacted his approach to business. It's a big subject for me because it was such a transformational uh, time in my life. Um, I mean, pain is a very interesting thing. What I've learned about it is that it's it's a bit like a warning light on the dashboard of your car, and if if you if you treat pain with drugs and things like that without looking at the root cause, then it's like turning it's turning the blinking engine light off in your car, which you would never do, right? Because you you know that's the light is not actually the problem that needs solving. Um, and I, I suppose I found that there's great teaching in pain, and that in paying attention to it is really the answer to solving it. Uh, but I, I was, you know, it, it came about when I was extremely stressed with with work and I had some family challenges going on and that that additional emotional stress uh, was kind of amping everything up and I've kind of learned that it's it's like pain is like uh, the result of your stress bucket overflowing if, if I don't take care of myself and pay attention to myself uh, then the, then the bucket keeps filling up and over, overflows 
Um, so that was, was a period of years where I, I realized that. And I, I kind of grew up in the culture where, you know, the, the harder that you work and the harder you drink after work, the, the better you were at work. You know, the, the, this was this was seen as excellent citizenry to, you know, work as many hours as you could, back-to-back meetings all day, charging all around the city, then heading down the pub afterwards, getting a good few beers down, um, the, the whole eating is cheating mentality of, you know, don't worry about food, just get some booze in. Uh, get get home at midnight or later and then get up, get up early the next day and go and do it again. Kind of, kind of grew up with that. And uh, it's only in retrospect, it seems obvious now, in retrospect, that's not a great way to live. <laughs> it causes all manner of, of challenges uh, or, or, and exacerbates um, problems. So I, I went through a whole period of realising this realizing the obvious stuff that my parents had probably pointed out a number of times uh, in my youth um, and started applying different principles to myself to live to live differently basically um, and it helped me realize that actually the team deserves the same right and actually as leaders and employers our job is as much as anything to look after our team you know and there's the old uh, as Buds says, uh, you can't pour from an empty cup. So if, you, if, if we're not looking after ourselves, how the hell are we going to look after 20, 30, 50, 100, 1,000 other people um, in, in life? It's a bit like put your oxygen mask on first, you know, when the plane's crashing. Um, so it, it, it was a period of deep kind of introspection to, and, a, and, a, and a set of probably dismissing some of what I was being told by the kind of traditional medical practices, which is, you know, the body is just this lump, it's a machine, and if you just oil the right bits and poke the right bits, the machine works. It's like, I realized it didn't, didn't really work like that, actually. The thoughts and emotions have a bigger impact on the physical body than physical things um, can, can do often. And so that really set us up as a company as one where, uh, tr- treating each other in a particular way was important and um, understanding that well-being is important. You know, this, and there's a couple of aspects. That one is because we feel like it's our responsibility as leaders for people to be well, but also, do you know what? If people aren't well, they're probably not going to be that productive. It's it's kind of common sense. So looking after everybody's well-being is uh, it's a smart move if you want to if you want to build a business as well. So it's a it's a it's a long winded uh, way of getting, getting some information across. But yeah, it was, it was it's actually the the chronic pain that really changed my life in a whole load of ways, and uh, I think I live for the live better now as a result. Loads to discuss there, but specifically to do with the chronic pain. Now our understanding typically is that if you're in pain, there's something broken or there's some issue within the body which is causing that pain is that not always accurate uh certainly in my experience yeah yeah it's um it's a two-way street between our mind and our body and so our bodies can affect our minds you know if you if if someone comes and chops your arm off you're probably going to be thinking about it um but but also our minds affect our bodies and they you know and there are obvious we intuitively we know this right if if um if I say something that's uh, sensationalist and deeply embarrassing 
to you in front of a group of people, you might blush immediately, instantaneously, before you've consciously thought about it. You know, if you're excited watching a film, your heart rate will change. Um, your, you know, our thoughts fundamentally affect every cell in our body. Uh, that's that's not really contentious. I just think that that's not generally understood in terms of the application of that in medicine and in our daily lives. So really, our the, the thoughts we're having and how we think and how we react to our own thoughts uh, has a dramatic impact on our bodies. And if and if we're thinking thoughts which are unhelpful to our body for years and years and years, then you know we're going to end up with with physical problems which include pain, but can can be can be we can cause wider range of diseases. In fact, and I said this is being recognised. So you know, I don't I don't remember the actual definitions, but the old definitions of pain were basically something's broken in your body and it hurts. If you look at like. Um, pain societies, global organizations studying pain, they really call it an emotion that's experienced, which may or may not be related to an underlying physical problem. Mm. So it is now more widely recognized that the, the sensation of pain need not... And, you know, and we have examples, you know, poor people who have lost limbs have phantom limb syndrome. They, they still feel and can feel pain in a limb which doesn't exist physically anymore so it's it's really the brain that's that's behind this yeah and in your case how did the pain manifest what was the process you went through from dealing with that pain initially and then recovering from it and lastly from a the impact on your day-to-day work i discovered a couple of practices which helped to relieve the pain and, and, and the practice is basically dig into why am I in pain? Ah, oh, there's some underlying history. And, and you, we can think of it as buried trauma. And tra- trauma is a big word. And we tend to think of, you know, serious car accidents and uh, bereavement, which, of course, are traumatic. But, but micro trauma exists every day. You know, that, that anxiety you feel when you get an email from your boss or, you know, a breakup in a relationship, moving house, going on holiday. These are all stresses or traumas. And um, the practices I put in place were, you know, on the whole one, trying to uncover what the trauma was and look at it. Don't don't try and ignore it. So actually understand and express the trauma. And I did that through journaling. So writing uh, what <laughs> writing about things I thought I had buried, upset, anxiety, humiliation, anger, resentment, any kind of negative emotion about. And that was that was the main thrust of it. And the other was um, paying attention to my body. So the trauma actually expresses in the body. So instead of trying to avoid the pain or be angry at the pain, it's like, well, feel it and look at it and say, why are you there? What's going on? How does that feel? Um, it, it feels like you're scared of something. There's nothing to be scared of anymore. You know, we're not, we're not being chased by a bear. Um, and it was amazingly quick, actually. So after five years of medical treatments, which ranged from, you know, on the one hand, seeing chiropractors and osteopaths and physiotherapists um, to consuming up to 26 or so tablets a day of different varieties through to having injections directly into my my spine. You know, I had five years of those practices. And actually, once I put in, in place the journaling and body scan meditations... Um, within a month, 90% of the pain had gone. And this is, (laughs) it's difficult to explain what it's like. Anyone that has given up smoking 
has a sense of this is was like wow i was in this i was in i built a prison for myself and realized that i had the key in my hand <laughs> right mm. um, it, it was like being just just liberated it was like wow all those thoughts i had about things i was never going to be able to do in the future because we we kind of have this sense that if our health if we have a health problem then that will just deteriorate you know especially when we get older it's just going to get worse and the truth is it doesn't have to be like that and and that was the realization i remember being at a, a barbecue with a bunch of family and friends who who many of you knew i had i had back pain because i'd often disappear from lunches and someone to go and lie down um and i remember doing a, a running of handspring <laughs> in the garden because the the liberation was so much the pain you know i'd, I'd lost the fear from the yeah. pain that, that is just it was just life-changing for me yeah yeah it's amazing isn't it i i also have experienced back pain for years so all of this stuff resonates and intrigues me um and actually i've had that same experience you know i only said to my son the other day when he asked me whether i'd join in in the kids versus parents football match whether whether i'd play and i said oh you know i'm not sure not sure i'll be able to do that it's not great for my back so literally i can see myself in your story we've only recently met but my sense is that you're quite an analytical person i know you're interested in science i'm guessing that an evidence-based approach to your work and to helping to resolve your back pain must have been pretty high up the agenda. So I'm interested how you reconcile that with something which seems so simple. And actually, given that you'd been through the various medical solutions and had taken pain medication and had received intervention, I'm just interested in how easy it was for you to accept that there was an alternative. Or were you just at the yeah. point where you just do anything? It's a, it's a really, really good point. This, this underlies, I think, a lot of uh, medical challenges people have. Um, I was at the end of my tether. I tried everything. The, 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 uh, the last doctor I spoke to was in New York, actually. He was a specialist in a particular condition in the spinal cord. You know, cerebral spinal fluid runs up and down. Not, you know, your brain fluid's not just in your brain. It goes down your back as well. And I have a slight swelling in my cerebral spinal uh, column. And uh, he basically told me I was going to lose the feeling in my hands and my arms, might lose the ability to use them. And he was suggesting in, in inserting a shunt, a metal tube to drain fluid from my brain and spine. Oh. And it was, it was at that point I said, no way, dude. I'm not doing anything like that, right? That's just, that doesn't seem proportionate. It doesn't seem like, it seems so irreversible and dramatic. That's not something I'm going to do. So I was at the end, I basically reached the end of trying everything. In, in the traditional Western uh, sense of um, treating, treating back pain. And, and it was only through my own research that I found this guy, Dr. Sano, where you know, he, 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 had, he was a medical doctor who spent 40 or 50 years healing back pain using different methods, using understanding the psychological and mental component to the physiological changes that, that happen. And you're right, I'm, I'm analytical. I'm a computer scientist by training. I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm deeply interested in physics. I lived most of my life as a, um, um, uh, a kind of materialist reductionist if, from a philosophical point of view, which is, basically means that the, you know, the universe is made of stuff and the stuff interacts, and when you die, that's the end of the stuff, your, your stuff. Um, and, 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 and I am data-driven. In fact, the company I run, I set up, cybersecurity company, is a data-driven company. We basically take data 
from organizations and derive their cybersecurity defensive posture from that data. It's, it's very analytical. It's very data-driven. And, and I am. I think there is a difference between understanding data and deriving meaning from it and understanding credibility and the right way of the perceived right way of doing things and doing that and we're brought up in a society where is that there is a considered a right way of doing things like eat three meals a day you know i don't know what the scientific research is that says we should eat three meals a day but i'm pretty sure we didn't evolve that way <laughs> you know pretty sure there was a lot of running around during the day to find some dinner uh, and eating it in the evening but but you know and i think as a result we you know especially in the uk we have a, we have a wonderful nhs we have, we have a wonderful health service that's there to protect us and look, and look after us um but but because of the way the whole thing is structured it's kind of in the way that medical science is taught it's binary. It's, it's either part of that formally accepted truth of how the body is, works and should be treated, or it, or it isn't. And if it isn't, then it's wrong. And, and that there's no leeway. And, and that's mm. seriously problematic, I think, because it means that lots of treatments could, which could dramatically help people's well-being just aren't considered right and proper. And that whole turnaround where new ideas can come into the, the, the medical industry is so long because it needs, you know, it's educated at a degree level over a period of years. And once you're done with that, you're done. And that's what you'll practice for, for years and years. So, and that's no disrespect to the people that do it. I'm eternally grateful for those people who've chosen to dedicate their lives at the service of others to help them be well. Um, but but there's the, the, the innovation, the new understanding of how things work doesn't necessarily filter into that. Um, so practices like which which are well accepted in the east of of you know meditation for well-being um, and the fact that your 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 thoughts and emotions have a direct impact on your body those are just fundamental fundamentally accepted concepts in the east in the west they're not part of the training yeah. it's not part of how doctors and surgeons are taught and so therefore it's wrong yeah. um, but, but of course it isn't wrong it's and more and more we're seeing outside of that medical establishment there are lots of people taking up practices which include yoga meditation and mindfulness and so on because it just does help your health and going back to your, your original question data driven means if thousands and thousands of people are saying this cured my pain this reduced my anxiety this this made me feel whole and well again then i'm going to pay attention to that because I want to, I want to listen to those stories. I want to hear the data. I won't just ignore them because they're not part of a the, the one structure that has credibility. So you mentioned before that journaling was part of the process that you established for yourself to help alleviate the pain. Specifically, what did you do with journaling? I'm really interested in yeah. the process you used for that. Yeah. Okay. And it's a good question. There's lots of different ways of journaling and keeping a diary, and there are different. Uh, there are different reasons for doing it, different outcomes people are looking for. I have a, f a, f a phrase that my team's probably sick of, which is there is no right or wrong, right? There's, there's never a right or wrong, it's just a judgment, right? There are, uh, there are just different outcomes as you choose to do things differently. It's like Edison, you know, inventing the light bulb, he, whatever it was, he found 999 ways to not invent a light bulb. That's, it didn't fail. Um, 
on on journaling, the way I did it, um, and if I think that the aim for me was to identify buried negative historical emotions in the subconscious. Now, the problem with that is that your subconscious is not consciously available to you, so you don't know what they are necessarily. You might have an inkling of them. And you see this in cases of extreme trauma where, you know, adults may go through a hypnotic regression and uncover... Uh, you know, a history of child abuse where they were abused as a child and they had no recollection of it. This is, that's an example, it's not in my case, but in other people's cases. Um, so that's, so that's the tricky bit. It's like, I don't really know what to write about, but probably got uh, an inkling. So what I, what I did was make a list of the potential topics in my life, uh, the people in my life, uh, the the outcomes I'd had in my life that could have some negative connotation. I and by negative, it's just emotions that you typically don't want: guilt and humiliation, anger, resentment, bitterness, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I made I made this list, and, and over time, I would just add to this list as as things came up. Um, and that was really my starting point. And what I would do is in the morning, typically on the train, I'd have a piece of paper or a notepad. And I'll just pick a topic from the list. Um, and it, let's say it's a person that I had some feeling about that from my past. It might be a girlfriend I broke. Let's pick that one. That's a good one. We've all been through a split up with a partner, I expect. And just write about that and say, look, and start it with, I feel, I feel angry at that person because they dumped me and left me feeling alone and all this kind of stuff. All the stuff that as a, as a guy, when you're brought up, is like, well, you don't express all that. You just, you just man up and get on with it. It's like, what you actually do then is you bury it, right? Quite, I call it stuffing it. You stuff it. And what we do need to do is unstuff it. So I would just journal about that. And journaling for me was writing as fast as I could. Uh, it doesn't matter what it looks like. No one's going to read it. You're going to throw it away afterwards. Uh, so speed writing is a way of uh, tapping into subconscious because your conscious mind doesn't have time to think about what I'm going to write. And the faster you go and the longer you do it, more stuff comes out that you weren't expecting. Um, so so I did that in the morning, maybe 10 minutes. Um, probably felt a, more and more felt a bit of emotion as I was doing it and then just threw it away, just got rid of it. And then in the in the evenings... When I got home, so the, the other the other cause of the pain, the other causal factor was just day to day emotional challenges. You know, if you're when your children are making your life difficult, and employees are making your life difficult, and someone tailgates you, and you know someone bumps into you on the street, well, you know, in this certainly in the UK, if someone bumps into you on the street, you normally say, "Oh, sorry." So what you really mean is, oh my God, why did you just walk into me, <laughs> right? But we don't, we tend not to say that because we are societally, that's not really acceptable. So, so in the evening, I would spend 10 minutes going, uh, what was my emotional journey for today? Oh yeah, that guy bumped into me. Oh, I was really angry this guy bumped into me and, you know, geez, that dude at work, what was he thinking? And she did this, that really made me feel sad or whatever it was. And then just throw that away. So it's basically starting to coach the mind and body to express emotion instead of stuffing it. Yeah. And the, the difficulty is you can't necessarily express the emotion directly to the person in the moment because if someone screws up at work, you don't want to get in their face and scream at them. But, but, but you can deal with that professionally and then go home and scream at the paper and throw it away. And after a while, it just becomes natural to, 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 to let those things out rather than keep them in. Yeah. 
That's really interesting. I think the point about what the desired outcome is is important. So my, my experience of journaling has been one of initially a relief to kind of get thoughts out onto a page. But the part which um, I haven't done, which you just pointed out, and perhaps I should have or perhaps should test, is the thrown away part. Because for me... I've done. I've mainly done this over the last couple of years as partly I've been trying to work out what I want to do next with my life, but also thinking specifically about, you know, what's this new business that I want to create? Because my intention's always been, I want to start something new. And I think the journaling process has kind of merged these two things, one of which is, you know, expressing my emotions and trying to take them out of my head. And the other is, what's the progress I'm making towards this idea? What is it? What's the big idea? And actually what I found was almost quite a depressing experience. Probably middle of last year, I wrote, I, I dated, I date each entry and I wrote it down and I flicked back and I thought, I wonder what, I wonder what I was thinking this time last year. And I had written almost exactly the same entry. So I suppose this is a cross between a journal and a diary. And actually I found it d- depressing. I was like, actually I've made very little progress because I was feeling the same emotions and I haven't really made, you know, much ground in terms of defining what the idea is. So I found actually eventually I, I gave it up for a while because I thought, well, actually this is doing the opposite to what I want to help and it's actually creating more negative emotions. So, I mean, look, I suppose with, with any of these things, testing things out and, and hearing p- people's positive experience and taking the best of it is probably the right approach. Yeah, so just on, just on that, I've, I've got a practice for that as well. Which you're right, I think that, that it's probably best to separate those two things because one is an expunging, one of them is getting rid of stuff mm. that's not serving you and the other is a, an intention setting and creative process where you want to hold on and make more of that. So, so maybe do the journaling as a separate exercise. What, what I do is I have uh, there's a guy called Joe Dispenza who's this amazing medical doctor who um, has had a lot of realizations in this space and he advocates the concept of a mind movie which is basically an intention setting process and um, I don't know you can make movies I do mine in PowerPoint but basically I I have a PowerPoint deck and it can be anywhere from three to five or six slides where each slide is an intention so, for example, I have an intention to buy a house and move into a house this year. So I have that as the first slide. You know, we're happy in our new home and picture of a house. And, and the second one is that I wrote a children's book a number of years ago that I want to get published this year so I can tick that box. And hmm. um, so I've got, you know, Digby, it's called Digby and Q22. Digby and Q22 is published and people are really enjoying it. And so every morning and every evening, if I, if I remember and I, I'm disciplined, I just spend... 30 seconds looking at each slide and just imagining what it would be like when that's happened. And that that's, that's my kind of separate process to create the future that I want, which is different to the, what the journaling, which is letting go of the past that I don't need anymore. That's not, yeah, it's not relevant. I'm wondering how we manage to make the time to adapt to the way that we work. And, and I'm, look, from, you've been running a fast-growing business with lots of pressures that come from managing people and ultimately being responsible to, to pay the wages, allows them to look after the family and live the lives they want to lead. And, and also, you know, take an investment, which always comes with its own unique set of demands on the pressure for growth. I'm interested in how you manage to go from this 
100 miles an hour lifestyle, which you presumably had, to taking a step back and incorporating the necessary components of a of a personal well-being strategy? Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few pieces to that. I think one of, one of them is the more I did, and by the way, I I would not say that I've got it right. Right, I'm still human and <laughs> suffer in the same way everyone else does from time to time with overwhelm and you know things breaking around me and not being able to pay attention to everything I want to. Um, but but things that helped me were firstly when I when I started a, a meditation practice and doing yoga, that really helped me to just have more perspective and more awareness. And this this goes back to the analogy of your, your kind of thought stream being a river. You know, the things that go through your mind are like, it's like a river going past. And and a lot of the time, and certainly for most of my life, my head was in the river. I was in the thoughts. And so if I had a thought that the company might fail, then I would, and what's interesting is your body feels that. Even though it's not real, you just, your mind just made it up. Your body feels it. It's like, oh my God, what am I going to do about that? Um so my head was in the river and sometimes the river would be rushing past and it would be real turmoil. Uh, but practices like yoga and meditation helped me pull my head out of the river. And on pulling my head out of the river, I suddenly realized, well, hang on, a lot of these thoughts are just <laughs> pointless and unhelpful. So I'm just going to ignore those. Uh, and that one looks useful. So I'm going to pay attention to that. And this one's really great. I'm going to, I'm going to spend time thinking about that. So that, that immediately took away the, a lot of the noise and the fog. Um, and I think that, then became reflected in my my physical moving around life where I started realizing, well, hang on, I'm doing this, this and this, but that's actually totally ineffective and doesn't create the outcome I want. So I'm just going to stop doing that. And that might actually be spending time with um, people, certain people or, or certain tasks that I was doing. It's like, well, I don't, it's not actually achieving what I want. So why, or I leave seeing this person feeling terrible because they just complain all the time. So I, I just don't see them. That's okay, you know. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and more and more I started kind of, it's like, um, I guess, panning for gold. You kind of shove the, the, the mesh thing into the silt and the bottom of the river and keep sieving it. And, and you start finding the golden nuggets and getting rid of the stuff that's not actually that helpful mm-hmm. in terms of your my intentions. Um, so that that became the normal way of doing things. And I think also projecting that out to people, that naturally projects out. People generally start picking up, oh, he's a bit different, you know, he seems calmer and a bit more organized in his, his thoughts. Um, and, and that also helps to put boundaries down. So I started putting boundaries around certain things like, I, you know, I'm, I don't feel as well when I don't do this. And this might be, you know, walking for half an hour a day or something else. So and again, if I can't look after my team, if I'm not well, then I'm going to make sure I do that. And the more boundaries you put down, uh, the more boundaries I put down, the more people just recognize they were boundaries and that was okay. Um, it's a bit like Twitter. It's like they're, whatever their number of characters were in a tweet, there was like, well, that's never going to work. You can't write enough. And it's like, you know, it seems to have worked out okay. People are quite happy with that boundary. Mm. They just They just use it and they get really really smart and cool and funny about writing things in a fewer number of um, characters. So people got used to it. And then the one, the one I don't want to forget is um, using my and working with my team to prioritize effectively. And this is a, a proper worky thing. Um, but I was, I was overwhelmed at work badly, badly overwhelmed. Um, and 
I'm kind of a conscientious person, I guess. So I was feeling bad about a lot of things that I wasn't doing or wasn't doing well. Um, so I spent a day with um, Vivian and Sophie, who are two wonderful individuals that I've had the, the pleasure of working with at Panacea over the years. And we just went through all of my um, kind of recent notes, all of my diary appointments for the last few months, um, all of my emails and anything where there was in work or interaction and started distilling out where, who, who are the key people that I'm communicating with? What are the key tasks that I'm doing? What are the key responsibilities that I've taken? What am I accountable for? Um, what's not getting done? And kind of went through and organized all of this on whiteboard and post-it notes. And then, 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 so I had a list of people, I had a list of tasks, a list of accountabilities. And then, and then said, hang on, as the CEO of this company, what am I uniquely um, able to do for this company that, that I can do that nobody else can do? And drew a ring around those things and found that like three quarters of the stuff wasn't stuff that I could uniquely do or in fact was any good at. Uh, you know, kind of assume the CEO's great. There's just CEOs aren't great at everything. In fact, they're terrible at many things. Um, and then said, right, well, that three quarters of that stuff needs to either not be done or be done by somebody else, which was great because then we could say, oh, well, these things actually should belong to that person in that role. And and all of these things, there's no natural owner for. Therefore, we need, we've got a hiring need. Someone needs to do them and we don't have anyone. Therefore, we need a hire, a hire to do it. So it was actually a hugely therapeutic process. Um, and then, and then following that, we set up an operational process so that every day we checked in, we looked at where we were, what had happened the previous day, what's happening now, what's happening in the next day, is everything taken care of? So I lost this burden on my shoulder that was constantly whispering in my ear, you didn't do the actions from that meeting, you never followed up with this person that, you know, you haven't done this, because we were on top of it every day. And that was a that was a massive massive change in my my work life, really huge. You're fortunate, I suppose, in that in the position that you're in, that you can have the support of a couple of people to help you manage that. So, you know, and I'm interested for people who don't necessarily have somebody to assist them in that process. What would be an equivalent audit that they could do of their time, and something that would be feasible when you're working for an organization in which you have responsibilities and tasks assigned to you and you have a manager looking over your shoulder, it's probably a bit of a negative way of putting it, but you get the point. <laughs> I'm just interested whether from a practical point of view, you've been able to find ways of doing that with the rest of the team. Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question. I recognize that I am privileged in that I have uh, a team around me. I think something that, we probably should make more of in the future of work is the team around you includes the team upwards as well as alongside and, and below in terms of if you're in a hierarchical organization you know your your boss should be your main advocate your main supporter uh, the person who is most uh, close to you in terms of helping you achieve your goals because if they're not then presumably your goal is important to them and they're not going to achieve their goal. So, so I think that, that dialogue is absolutely crucial and it, it requires the, the, the manager, the leader, the boss, whoever it is, to sometimes take a reduction in ego and understand that, you know, it's not about them. It's about empowering the person that's working for you, for, both for their benefit and for yours, and to, to run this kind of process with them. 
Um, but I think it's, it's something you can do on your own. It, it takes just a, a couple of hours to step step outside of your the, the day-to-day operation and go, what am I doing? <laughs> and what should I be doing? And what is the difference between those two things? And as soon as I see that difference, um, I can then um, work on changing things. And maybe you'll find that you're doing a lot more than you meant to. Maybe that's a great conversation to have with your boss. It's like, I've had a look at my time and the outcomes I'm creating and what the people I'm engaging and wow, this seems to be very different to my role and what you asked me to do. So how do, how do we reconcile that? But, but, but mostly it's, it's, it's like getting your head out of the river. It's stepping away from it. It's stepping away from it and saying, what am I actually doing? And is that, is this what I'm, what, is this a helpful thing for me to be doing? both for me and the organization I, that I work for. So I think we, we spend a lot of time doing things because that's how we've done them rather than doing things because they're the most effective way of creating the outcomes that we're, we're really, really trying to get to. Well, look, Nick, pleasure to chat and really interesting to hear about your story. I've, I've not only learned some stuff, but I've also um, made a list of action points that I'm going to go away and follow. So, <laughs> oh, no, you. You, come, you come to interview me and you end up with a list of action. You've created some, created some work for myself, a work which will have a positive outcome, I'm sure. I hope so. Thank so. You. I hope so. But for, yeah, if anyone's suffering chronic pain, obviously I'm not a medical doctor, um, see, see medical professionals. But if you're getting to a point of frustration that you're not getting, uh, not having, not experiencing change uh, in that, then try journaling because probably ain't going to do any harm but could could change your life great nice one cheers nick all right thanks so much and that was my conversation with nick whitfield i mean i found that incredibly useful i hope you found it interesting too Uh, as i said at the very beginning of the show i put links to a couple of the resources in the show notes and also a link to nick's profile now, next week, I've got another brilliant guest, uh, Bruce Daisley. He's the former VP of Twitter for EMEA. He previously ran YouTube in the UK as well. You probably know him now, though, as an author of The Joy of Work, which is a Sunday Times bestseller. He also writes a successful newsletter and hosts one of the most popular business podcasts in the UK. Until then, have a great week.